On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. shocking but not shocking at the same time it's been you know 10 12 years whatever it was and i was just like wow things still could come back and haunt you i thought i got past that part of my life because like i said i'm pretty a good girl so yeah it was like pretty mind-blowing and shocking Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linklater again in First Degree merch. I mean, it's like all you live in now. I love it. Well, working from home, that's one of the benefits. You can just be in your athleisure loungewear constantly. And I just happen to have a a backstock of of our vintage First Degree merch that I just go through as rotation. I know. Now it is vintage, which I love. Me too. So um, I actually do have a list of things that we need to go through before we start this episode because I always forget. And then we're halfway through the episode and I'm like, why haven't I mentioned Patreon? So number one, if you are not a member of our Patreon, there is so much bonus content over there. Uh, One bonus episode a week, a full true crime story. I mean, sometimes they end up being longer than these episodes because we really dive right in. We really do. And most of those are recommendations that we take from our Patreon members. So if you have a story that you've always wanted more answers about or a story you've just always been intrigued by and want us to cover, you can send it to us and we probably will. Yeah. And there's also video content for all of our Killing Time episodes. So if you'd love to see our faces, it's over there. And just so like over a year of backlogged content. So please join us over there. And then my next round of business is we are officially having our meetups in New York City and Chicago. July 13th is in New York. July 22nd is in Chicago. I made invites on Facebook. They're in our Facebook group. So please RSVP. We'd love to see your pretty faces and have a drink. Yeah. And chat true crime or gossip or whatever you want. Literally whatever you want. We just want Mm -hmm. to have a good time and an excuse to, you know, have some libations. That's right. Not that we ever really need an excuse, but no, it's literally why we started this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last round of business is if you have stories, first degree stories that you want to send in, if you are connected to a crime or you know somebody that is, that you want the story to be told, no story is too small. So please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. We are currently taking submissions. Yes. And we want to keep giving you these compelling episodes that 
cover a range of important topics. And we can't do that without you. All of our episodes are crowdsourced, crowd and listener source. So we don't approach anybody. We rely completely on our listeners to submit cases. So continue to do that so we can keep bringing you the good stuff. Absolutely. Well, that is all of our housekeeping for today. Should we get into the day today really quick before we start? Yes. What is it? It's International Body Piercing Day. Wow. I have been thinking about re-piercing my belly button, so this might push me over the edge. If you do, I had my belly button pierced, so if you do it, maybe I have to do it. That would be really fun. Just <laughs> be 30, ridiculous. 36 years old, getting your belly button pierced. It's really a midlife crisis, which uh, I'm into. Jeez. <laughs> and it is also International Caps Lock Day, so if you want to yell at somebody over the internet, today is the day. I'm a big caps lock gal. You are. Half of our script is in caps, actually. I know. And that's why when I'm replying to text sometimes, it's all in caps lock. I'm always like, sorry, Jared, I'm working. <laughs> You're getting in I'm in caps. first degree mode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Love. We all want it. We all need it. And the love shared between two intimate partners is something that's been romanticized for centuries. In ancient books, in the plays by Shakespeare, and in poems written by Edgar Allan Poe and Voltaire. And we all have different definitions for what love means. Those with wisdom will tell you that mature love is a choice. And when it comes to relationships, butterflies in your stomach, magnetic attraction, and fireworks aren't always enough. Love is someone having your back, Love is someone bringing as much to the table as you are, and love is someone choosing you and choosing to put their best foot forward every single day. But love, especially young love, can drive you to ignore red flags, to make excuses. You're still thinking aspirationally, thinking people can change if you just love them enough. And when you're young, love is all about that feeling. Let's take Romeo and Juliet, for example. Sure, they were fictional, but they were also 16 and 13 years old, respectively. And the star-crossed lover's archetype has become a common one because of their story. For them, love is worth dying over. But it makes you wonder whether they would have made the same choices if they had some relationship experiences under their belts. So what happens when you fall in love when you're young, when you're blinded by feelings, attraction, and obligation? What other darkness might you be blind to? And what truths might you eventually be blindsided by? So today's case takes us back to July 29th of 1994. The number one R&B song was Anytime, Anyplace by Janet Jackson. The number one country song was Summertime Blues by Alan Jackson. The number one alternative hit was Come Out and Play by The Offspring. And finally, the number one dance track was Caught in the Middle by Juliet Roberts. And honestly, it was a great time for movies. One of my favorite movies of all time, The Mask, was number one. Jim Carrey was my first crush, second crush after The Green Ranger, uh, but that movie is a classic for me. Cameron Diaz in that movie is like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. So beautiful. Stunning. And then the number two movie was Forrest Gump. Also, I mean, an iconic classic. topper. And the number three movie was True Lies. I mean, so good. Right. That list of movies kind of blew me away. I was like, what a time. Pop culture was buzzing. So good. 
So the setting for today's story is Vista, which is a city located in northern San Diego County, California. Vista is a place I've personally been many times. It feels safe there. It feels like an upper-class suburb where perhaps you'd want to raise a family. And according to Vista's website, the city of Vista is a charter law city and was incorporated on January 28th of 1963. Located just seven miles inland from the Pacific Ocean in northern San Diego County, the city of Vista has a perfect, mild Mediterranean climate. Residents enjoy a wide range of year-round outdoor activities in a setting of gentle rolling hills in pleasant rural surroundings. Vista is approximately 19 square miles with a population of 100,291. And if you've ever been to the suburbs of San Diego, you'll know that it's kind of hilly. And while it's a rather densely populated city, there's a lot of open land, especially back in 1994 before Vista's population really exploded. And at the time, there were more stretches of underdeveloped property that sat between housing developments that were under construction. And another thing to know about Northern San Diego is that it's a very popular tourist destination. People from all over the country and the world like to take advantage of the beautiful beaches and that perfect Mediterranean climate that Lex was talking about. Right. And speaking of tourists, on the morning of July 29th, 1994, the Underseth family, who were out-of-towners who were in the area visiting friends, had plans to set off some toy rockets with their two preschool-aged kids. And the family navigated up a remote area in the Vista Hills to find the perfect spot to launch these things. So they drove up a street called Oak Ridge Way, which ended with a cul-de-sac. And as they neared the end, they saw a Dodge Ram pickup truck parked in the distance. And to their horror, on the ground in front of the pickup was a man, lying motionless, face down. It was clear he was dead, and he had visible gunshot wounds. And there was no doubt about it, this was a homicide. When the police arrived at the scene, they realized quickly that they were familiar with this particular location. In fact, the place where the truck was parked was in the middle of an underdeveloped area that local teens would sometimes use to party due to how isolated it was. They would hang out there, drink beer, do drugs, bring dates, hook up, whatever, the kind of things that parents didn't want their kids doing. And another thing that they noticed is that it appeared to be an execution-style slang. When they observed the victim, they could see that the man was lying in front of the truck looked really young, no older than 25, and this prompted the law enforcement to wonder whether this murder had occurred at a party that may have been held there the night before. That possibility seemed more likely as police observed numerous beer cans scattered around the scene as well. And it didn't take long for police to identify the victim as 24-year-old Adrian Marshall. So now they knew the victim's name, but who was he? Adrian was a son, a husband, and a brother. He was a person who had a family who loved him. But he was more than that, too. According to his obituary, he had been married shortly before his death. And at the time of his murder, he was working on and off as a carpenter. According to the San Diego Times Advocate, the first time Adrian Marshall's name appeared in the newspaper, it was under a picture of he and his sister walking through Escondido's Grape Day Park on Spring Day. The then eight-year-old boy was holding a poster and casting a sidelong glance over his shoulder at the camera. Then in 1988, Adrian's name appeared in the paper again, but this time it was for different reasons. The article was about the prevalence of hard drug use in San Diego schools. Adrian had struggled with drugs as a teen, and according to this article, the 17-year-old started smoking marijuana when he was 13 and began selling drugs when he was 14. He flunked out of eight rehabilitation programs before he finally found a program that stuck with him. He said, I was so into Crystal, it changed my personality. 
I would go out looking for trouble. Finally, I told my ma that if I ever got high again, I would die. Adrian went on to add that he wanted his name included in the article to try to add the reality of the problem. Right. And this article really drove home the point that youthful drug abusers and drug dealers needed more resources to get clean. They needed more help. And the article ended by saying, there are no magic potions for those attempting to quit. Based on the evidence at the scene of Adrian's murder, it was clear that Adrian had continued to struggle to stay clean into his 20s because the police found a small baggie containing crystal meth near his body. With this, there were just so many questions. Who killed Adrian Marshall and why? And would law enforcement be able to solve this case? To answer all these questions and more, you know the drill. We got to go back. In 1988, when he was 17 years old, according to the article he participated in, Adrian appeared motivated to stay sober. But sadly, despite numerous attempts at rehab, that's not what happened with him. The discovery of drugs at the scene of Adrian's murder prompted law enforcement to question whether drugs were a motivating factor in his murder. As the police were brought up to speed on details about Adrian's life, they learned that he lived in an apartment with a woman named Kelly Reed. Kelly was rumored to be dealing drugs, and oddly and suspiciously, Kelly Reed was now missing and nowhere to be found. So could she have some hand in what happened to Adrian? The police wanted to secure interviews with as many of Adrian's associates as possible in search of a lead. News of Adrian's murder shattered his family. His mother, Debbie Murphy, spoke to the Times Advocate and she said, It's really, really hard. I make myself get up and go to work every day, and I go to a lot of different support groups. I go to the cemetery all the time, and I'm trying everything I can to get through this. But I can't get rid of this vindictive feeling I have for the person who killed Adrian. The article went on to say that Adrian's mom wasn't naive enough to believe that her son was a saint. She describes a troubled youth who was in and out of drug rehab centers as a teen and a young man who fell in with the wrong crowd. But for a while before his death, he was turning his life around. He worked for a time in the family's construction business, and he got married. Debbie appealed to the public to come forward. If you truly were Adrian's friend and you truly cared about him, call the police, call me, or make an anonymous call. Do whatever you have to do. Adrian's autopsy would reveal that he'd been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber pistol. And that's not all the autopsy revealed. Inside the pocket of the jeans Adrian was wearing when he was killed was a piece of paper. Scribbled on the paper was the name Kevin, along with a phone number. So while it was possible that this Kevin person may have had nothing to do with Adrian's murder, there was always a chance that this first clue could lead them to Adrian's killer. The phone number led police to a man in his mid-20s named Kevin Hanshu. So who was this guy? And was he involved in this? Why was his name written on a piece of paper found in Adrian's pocket? We got lots of questions. And who better to tell us about Kevin than the woman who was in a relationship with him at the time? Our first degree for today's story is named Darlene. And Darlene used to date Kevin, then they got married, and they had two beautiful children together. We'll let you tell her about him and how they met. We had a lot of mutual friends. One of my good friends had the house, and there's about four or five different guys that would live there. And we just started going there and hanging out. I met him and actually at a Super Bowl party, and we kind of spooled around that night, and then it just never stopped. He's six foot nine. (laughs) and I'm five foot one and he's not just a tall he's tall and a bigger guy too I look like his kid people used to think I was his kid walking next to him holding his hand (laughs) 
he was pretty good looking to me and had tattoos and everything. And he was my first like serious boyfriend. Like Darlene said, after the two of them met, they were full steam ahead. And this was like a love at first sight kind of thing for them. Darlene was only 18 when she and Kevin became serious, and Kevin was in his early 20s, a slightly older bad boy with tattoos and a charming personality. Eventually, Darlene learned that Kevin had been married once before, and he actually had a son. And when we say Kevin was kind of a bad boy, he really was. He'd been in and out of trouble with the law for a string of not super serious offenses. But Darlene really fell for this guy, even though she'd been a good girl all of her life. And at the time, she didn't really care that Kevin had had a difficult time following the rules. She loved the way this guy made her feel. And we can all relate to that. I know I can. I think that was that. It was the comfort of somebody. And, you know, he really was very nice. Actually, like right after we got together, I think he had to go to jail. (laughs) So stupid of me. But he used to send me these amazing, you know, love letters. You know how you hear about all these people in jail that do that now. So, you know, I was young. I you know, wouldn't be doing any of the stuff I did back then now. The relationship between Darlene and Kevin continued to evolve. And in hindsight, Darlene can see that this was a relationship that really held her back in life. She'd always been ambitious and she'd always done the right thing. But she was so in love with Kevin that her perspective on things began to change. One thing that always bothered Darlene, regardless of how much she was in love with Kevin, was his drug use. Sometimes it was recreational and sometimes it was more than that. But we'll let her explain. I knew it was crystal meth, but he would keep telling me he wasn't doing it. So I was kind of in denial of the signs that he was doing it because he was never the type that looked like he was a meth head. Crystal meth um, at that time was very big in California, especially Southern California. A lot of dark things were happening like everywhere. I got to meet a lot of people that were on drugs because of him like they'd come over to the house and everybody was always nice to me and I never I never did it ever but I did know that he would leave the house and and go off and do it. As time continued to pass Kevin and Darlene's lives continued to get more and more intertwined. I found out I was pregnant so it had been 93. We were actually living at his parents house at that time. I actually never planned on having children. I didn't want to, you know, have an abortion or anything like that. So he had a son with his first wife. At the time, you know, it was also that girly thing where, okay, well, now we'll have something together. At first, Arlene and Kevin lived with his parents, but eventually got their own place in another suburb not far from Vista. We got a little place in Escondido. So that was the first time we lived together. And then from there, it was a, one of those relationships where he kind of took out all my friends. Like, I stopped seeing any friends. It's pretty much he was my only friend pretty much right away. I knew he was bad. I knew he had a, some drug habits. But, you know, at that age, I thought, you know, I could be a good girlfriend. I could help him and things like that. But now that Darlene was pregnant, Kevin's drug use, understandably, became more of a problem for her. He liked doing it. But when I got pregnant... My mom, actually, we decided to try to get him clean. We actually put him on an Amtrak train and sent him to Florida here because my aunt, and who's an amazing person too, like was willing to take him in and have her at his house just to get away from his friends that were in that area. But yeah, that didn't work. Darlene's pregnancy flew by, and before she knew it, her due date was approaching. Kevin was back from Florida, but still struggling with his drug habit. And she remembers the day that her daughter was born super clearly. Kevin was by her side for, you know, some of it at least. 
so he was there with me at first. I believe he took me to the hospital and then he left and I literally went into labor right away. So my mom had called him to told him to get there and he barely made it because she came so fast. So he was there when she actually was birthed. Darlene was thrilled to become a mom and was instantly in love with her daughter. Then only months later, she found herself having one of those days where she was just doing mundane errands. She doesn't remember which errand she was running or what errand led her to the particular parking lot where she would have this encounter. What she does remember is the encounter itself, and you'll learn why in a second. Two detectives approached her, and it was then that she learned about Adrian Marshall's murder in Vista. She also learned that the police were investigating Kevin, her Kevin, as a possible suspect. I was in the parking lot and they came to the car. All of a sudden, the two detectives came out and started talking to me about it. The detectives had questions about where Kevin was on the evening that Adrian was killed, which was July 29th, 1994. And they asked the typical questions, the who, what, where, why, when, etc. When they asked about Kevin's whereabouts on the day in question, Darlene told them that she didn't know. The murder had occurred the day before she gave birth to her daughter, and getting through labor had been the only thing on her mind at the time. And this was a shocking line of questioning. Could Kevin have actually murdered someone? Eventually, the detectives were done asking their questions and left, and naturally, Darlene had questions for Kevin. I probably had to say something in the car when he came back in that some detectives came and talked to me, and I'm sure I said what happened I'm thinking and he probably told me no I didn't do it I never heard the name of the guy so he wasn't somebody I knew it wasn't like a friend of his so we probably did have like maybe a really quick conversation about it and then I never heard from the detectives or anything again so as far as Darlene was concerned Kevin couldn't have had anything to do with this this was the man she loved this was the father of her child This is a guy who loved his mom, who loved her mom, who was good with kids. He couldn't possibly be involved in this. Unbeknownst to Darlene, these detectives had actually already tracked Kevin down and questioned him because they wanted to know why his name and phone number had been found in the pocket of their murder victim. Kevin had an explanation. He said that he'd been introduced to Adrian because he'd been asked to mediate a dispute between Adrian's roommate, Kelly Reed, who we told you about, and another woman. He said he had plans to meet up with Adrian at some point that night, but never actually did. And while the police were really suspicious of Kevin, they couldn't prove that he was lying about never seeing Adrian that night. And following Darlene's interaction with the detectives in the parking lot, she didn't think much about the murder again. The whole thing kind of faded into the background, and she took Kevin at his word when he said he wasn't involved. And plus, Darlene now had a family to worry about and an infant daughter. Kevin would disappear sometimes, forcing her parents to step in and help out with taking care of the kids. But regardless, Darlene wanted to try to be happy in her relationship with Kevin. He really is a good dad, especially back then. He was there. He was helpful. But of course, he did leave sometimes. And I actually was pretty lucky because my mom and stepdad loved her. Like she was their everything, their first grandbaby. And so she spent a lot of time there at their house because I actually had just finished a medical training program and had to do my externship right after I gave birth, within six days after I gave birth. So I was was back to work. And so my mom and stepfather had her a lot. Darlene and Kevin's relationship, 
Obviously, it was far from perfect, but no relationships are. And she did most of the heavy lifting when it came to her daughter and handling the bills. But things kept progressing between them anyway. Darlene and Kevin would go on to have another daughter together and eventually get married. Within that year, I I got pregnant with our second daughter. And we moved to Florida. And at the time, I didn't even want him to really come with me (laughs) to Florida. But I didn't know how to end the relationship. We got married. I felt it was the right thing, being pregnant with number two. (laughs) And at the time, Darlene felt pressure to double down and marry Kevin for several reasons. And love wasn't the primary one. In fact, the truth about Kevin's shortcomings eventually came into focus for her. Backstory. So my stepfather had leukemia and he was really going downhill. I was pregnant with, like I said, my second daughter and he wanted to walk me down the aisle, my stepfather. So when I was six months pregnant, we had a small wedding ceremony at my parents' house. My stepfather was able to walk me down the aisle and it was just a really simple, you know, ceremony with some of the family and things like that. But honestly, I was torn if I even wanted to marry him. I almost say that like I got married knowing that I was probably going to get divorced. He was a very charming guy. Like even my mom still talks about like how he really helped her at times. But even his mom had told me to leave her son because I was a good girl. (laughs) My parents did fairly well for themselves. And so I could have had a college life. I could have had so much more, but I kind of fell in with him and just, you know. But Darlene hoped for the best, believing that Kevin had the ability and the potential to finally step up and be the man she deserved. But that is not what happened. And Kevin was good. He was such a good person. Like, I, I will say that over and over again. I mean, he was a kind person where he didn't have the drugs. I absolutely did love him, but I knew that I was probably not going to be able to handle this man for the rest of my life because of his addiction. A lot of times it was me working and paying the bills and supporting him pretty much through most of the relationship. That's kind of why I just got burnt out on him. It became evident that drugs truly did have the ability to change Kevin and transform him from a loving father to someone mean, selfish, and unrecognizable. And eventually Darlene was pushed to her limits. She knew she had to leave this man who was making her so unhappy. My mom had actually bought a really nice house in Pompano Beach, but he wasn't holding a job at all. He would get jobs, get fired or quit or whatever, not show up. And I just broke down. My mom said, I can't keep helping you. By this time, my stepfather had passed away. And at that time, I decided I'm going to find another place by myself and told him, you know, you're on your own. But he did all the things where claimed he was going to kill himself. He went and laid on a railroad track, supposedly, so I wouldn't leave him. I just really was falling out of love with him. By this time, I was, you know, 23 and just was growing up and getting smarter. I finally said, no, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And got myself another apartment completely by myself without really, you know, even talking to him about it and moved me and my girls out. I just was done. And it was a lot to do with his drugs. Finally, Kevin's luster had faded to the point that Darlene wanted him and his influence away from her and their girls. That irresistible draw to Kevin had finally faded. And she started to realize that love really was more than just a feeling. It's about choices too. And sometimes people under the spell of addiction are incapable of making the right ones. 
After Darlene left him, Kevin rebounded rather quickly. His new girlfriend's name was Jennifer Rocks, and this is a name you should remember because it comes into play pretty soon. He went right into another relationship with uh, the other girl. He was like probably playing us both, trying to get me back, but still like with her. I think there was a lot of that happening. He went and signed divorce papers. I believe it's because he didn't want to have to get riled up with child support and everything because he never gave me a penny. I didn't want nothing to do with him. It was a real crazy time. And guess what? After the breakup, Darlene had no problem moving on. I met my husband playing a, a video game online. <laughs> Star Wars That's Galaxy. Cute. I'm a Star Wars obsessed person. And we had a long distance relationship for eight months. And so it was easier for me to take my two girls because, you know, Kevin wasn't going to fight me for them or anything. So I took him and moved there to Illinois. He's still my current husband. Darlene was finally in a relationship with a man who deserved her and treated her so well. So it wasn't hard for memories of her life with Kevin to fade into the rearview mirror. And for the most part, they did. The years started to pass, and she thought about him and their former life in San Diego together less and less frequently. So speaking of San Diego and speaking of memories, there were several people in San Diego who hadn't forgotten about Kevin at all. And that included some San Diego sheriff's detectives who were still convinced that Kevin had murdered Adrian Marshall in cold blood. The original detectives who had been assigned Adrian's case back in 94 couldn't shake this cold case, and the case file sat on the desk of Sheriff's Detective Rick Scully for more than a decade as he agonized over how to solve it. They knew Kevin was involved. They just couldn't prove it. The hope was that even years later, it was possible that the right tip could come in and break the case wide open. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. You know, after all, there were people who missed Adrian so deeply. Starting the year after his murder, Adrian's stepfather, Pat Murphy, who was president of the Hot Air Balloon Association in San Diego, started visiting elementary schools and conducting hot air balloon demonstrations in honor of his late stepson. He would bring a message and a memorial on these visits and encourage these kids to stay away from drugs to avoid the fate that Adrian met. Pat Murphy was quoted by the Times Advocate and said, I tell kids to stay away from drugs. There's too many things in this life to experience. You can get plenty high off a hot air balloon. And he would speak to up to 700 kids at a time and take them on short air balloon rides and show them what it really felt like. It was such a beautiful way to pay tribute to Adrian's life and gave him a way to keep his case alive and continue to urge authorities to solve it. Right. And I think that's just a really sweet way to try to keep focus on a case and like to bring a kid in a hot air balloon to show like to help them develop a passion, I think is such you know, it kind of chokes me up. It's like, yeah, he lost his stepson and this is what he was trying to do to help other kids not fall into the trap of drugs. You know, it's terrible. Yeah. And so it is just such a sweet way for him to keep his son's name alive. Yeah. Either way though, Dust continued to collect on Adrian's case file despite his family's best efforts. Darlene, who was by now living on a farm in Illinois with her new husband years later, never thought about the strange encounter with these two detectives in the San Diego parking lot a decade prior. It's just not something that crossed her mind. She was in a new life, in a new reality, with a new partner who had nothing to do with this. So when two surprise visitors showed up on her doorstep in 2004, she was all the more shocked. I lived like literally in a small town in a cornfield. 
So they come knocking on my door and I'm like, what? (laughs) And I was freaked out, like really freaked out. And they, you know, said, hey, do you remember us? We talked to you. We were in the parking lot. We came out and talked to you in your car. It was shocking, but not shocking at the same time. It's been, you know, 10, 12 years, whatever it was. And I was just like, wow, things still could come back and haunt you. It was the two detectives who had questioned Darlene a decade earlier. And they were still convinced of Kevin's guilt. But why were they here now? If the case was still cold, what had changed? So it turns out now they knew more. They said it was a drug deal gone wrong. And they said somebody's come forward and said that he confessed to it. In my heart, like, I felt like I would have known if he did it. And I really never thought he did, honestly. I didn't imagine him ever killing somebody. Darlene still couldn't wrap her mind around the Kevin she knew murdering someone in cold blood. But maybe he had. Maybe the same blinding love that drove her to marry him, even though she wasn't fully happy, was preventing her from seeing the truth about him. Or was it possible that these detectives were wrong and there was really more to this story? She remembered that the murder supposedly happened the night before her first daughter was born. It was the night before he was out. And I can't remember, like, timing or anything when he was out, but he we had an apartment in Vista very close to where this supposedly happened. And I remember one of his friends was there also. And I know they left, but... Don't recall how long they were gone for anything. He was home that night, like later in the evening, like really late, and took me to the hospital in the morning. So it it happened sometime that night before. So if Kevin really is guilty of this murder, that means after killing Adrian, he came home, crawled into bed with Darlene, and drove her to the hospital in the morning when her child was born. But according to Darlene, Kevin acted completely normal. That's why like, I've never really known if he was actually guilty for it. Because no, I really didn't like sense anything weird or different. And that's what's so crazy about this whole case. Like I didn't feel it like he did it or not did it. Or you know what I mean? I just didn't see any change in him. I was definitely at, well, you know, maybe he did. Especially if, if they're telling me he supposedly maybe confessed. And I didn't want to tell my girls because by then my girls were probably eight and 10. So, you know, I didn't really say anything. It was just more of a shock and kind of wondering and curious. And they told me, you know, they're getting ready. They're going to take it to court and all this stuff that I would have to probably come out there to testify. And so it was pretty shaken up and shocked by it. And while Darlene still wasn't 100% sure of Kevin's guilt, the detectives certainly seemed to be. They informed her that Kevin had already been arrested in Florida, charged for the murder, and was currently facing extradition to California to be formally arraigned there. The detectives were on Darlene's doorstep to re-interview her and give her a heads up about the trial and the possibility that she may have to testify. And while Darlene dreaded the idea of testifying against her ex-husband, her children at this time were her main focus. It rattled me a lot. Like, I think it was just like, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, is this this happening and am I gonna have to go and and talk about this at the court and then of course I was just terrified for my girls and them finding out and and you know I had to tell my new husband and that craziness of having to tell him that my ex-husband could be charged with you know first-degree murder 
Ten years after Adrian's murder, Kevin was working as a tow truck driver at a place called J&J Towing. An article that ran in the Florida Herald after his arrest detailed the following. Detectives say that Kevin Hanshu was angry over a bad drug deal, took a man named Adrian Marshall to a construction site in 1994, forced a victim to lie face down, and then shot him repeatedly in the back of the head. Hanshu, who has an extensive criminal background, including a 2001 charge for domestic violence, assault, and cruelty towards children. The U.S. Marshals who helped with the arrest use a ruse to secure Kevin's arrest. And according to the same article that Jack just quoted, the Marshals decided to handle the arrest this way because of how huge this guy was. They were worried that they actually wouldn't be able to take him into custody without getting hurt. So like Darlene said earlier, he stood at a whopping 6'9", which I don't think I've... Huge! That's gigantic. And he was 300 pounds. So this is a big man. They probably needed like two sets of handcuffs connected together to, you know what I mean? Some guys this big, they can't even fit their arms behind their back because they're so right. like barrel chested. And men aren't as flexible as women. Let's be real. So what they did during this ruse is they walked into the tow business where he worked and they called Kevin by a different name and said they were there to arrest him for a violation of a protection order. And Kevin said, no, no, you have the wrong guy. And the marshals then said, okay, yeah, it's probably just a mix up, but for our, for the safety and for procedure, let us cuff you while we sort all of this out. And once they had him cuffed and in a position where he couldn't resist the arrest, then they broke the news to him. Actually, you're being arrested for a murder that happened a decade ago of Adrian Marshall. So now let's talk about what it was exactly that triggered Kevin's arrest nearly 10 years later. This case was ice cold, so what changed? Well, like we said, at the time of the murder, the police were highly suspicious that Kevin was the killer, not only because Adrian had been found with Kevin's name and number written on a piece of paper in his pocket, but for other reasons as well. So police had actually tracked down another witness that seemed to implicate Kevin. It turns out Adrian was working as a drug runner the night he'd been murdered and police found the dealer he'd been working for. The dealer was Adrian's roommate, who we told you about, Kelly Reed, who vanished after Adrian was murdered. So she was eventually found, and according to her, the last time she saw Adrian alive was when she sent him to hand-deliver drugs to Kevin Hanshu. Kelly told the police that Adrian was supposed to make two deliveries that night, and when he failed to return by 10.30 p.m., she had become worried and started calling around for information. She even called Kevin that night looking for Adrian. And when he eventually picked up the phone in the early hours of July 30th, he told her that he had never met with Adrian because, quote, his wife wouldn't let him out of the house. Then when Kelly learned what had happened to Adrian, she told the police, I ran. I didn't know why he was killed and I didn't want to be in his apartment. She was worried for her own life and got out of Dodge as quickly as she could. Of course, Kevin's name being written down on a piece of paper and Kelly's story wasn't enough evidence on its own. Right. For an ironclad case, the police definitely needed more. But everything changed in 2004 when the police received a phone call they were not expecting. So rewinding back to Darlene and Kevin's split, we told you that Kevin rebounded with a woman named Jennifer Rocks. Well, that relationship lasted for a while. They even ended up having a son together. But eventually, things started to fall apart between them. And it was during their breakup that Jennifer would become the linchpin to this case. When Jennifer and Kevin were together, they lived in Coconut Creek, Florida, and this was until their relationship hit the metaphorical rocks. 
And while when they broke up, they shared joint custody of their son, it wasn't necessarily an amicable split, especially once Jennifer started dating someone new. You know, Kevin didn't handle it very well. And that's actually an understatement. Kevin handled it terribly. So badly, in fact, that Jennifer alleged that Kevin assaulted her new boyfriend with a flashlight, beating him so badly that he required 46 stitches in his head. After Kevin did this, Jennifer was prompted to call the San Diego authorities and tell them a secret that she said that she'd been harboring for years. She made this call on April 6th of 2004. Right. And Jennifer told the detectives that while the two of them were still in a relationship, Kevin told her and a number of friends that he had killed someone once in California. She continued and said, I don't know how I felt at the time. I probably didn't want to believe him. She told the police that seeing Kevin beat her boyfriend with a flashlight and the many threatening phone calls he'd made after the beating and during their split made her fear for her life and validated this confession Kevin had made prior. This is why she was deciding to report this now. She said, knowing that story and seeing what had happened, there was real fear. And this call is what the authorities had been waiting for. With Jennifer's story, they believed that they had what they needed to indict Kevin for the murder of Adrian Marshall. It took a handful of months, but finally on November 6th of 2004, a now 33-year-old Kevin Hanshu was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of Adrian. He was held at Fort Lauderdale's main jail on a $1 million bond. And immediately, extradition proceedings began to send Kevin to face the charges in California. But Kevin wasn't going to make that process easy. And in fact, it took more than a year to extradite Kevin from Florida to California. And once Kevin made it to California, a preliminary hearing date was set, and all of the evidence the state had against Kevin Hanshu was presented. Kevin's ex-girlfriend, Jennifer, testified, recounting the story of his alleged confession that happened years prior. And a friend of Jennifer's named Lacey also testified that Kevin had confessed the murder to her as well. Here's what Lacey said about Kevin's confession. He said that when he lived in California years ago, a murder had happened, and he was investigated for it, and he got away with it. Another person who testified at that hearing was Kelly Reed, the admitted former drug dealer who Adrian was drug running for. On the stand, she detailed how Kevin had called her to buy drugs in 1994. And Kelly, who, remember, was Adrian's roommate at the time, arranged to have Adrian meet Kevin to make that handoff. She instructed him to deliver 16 ounces of crystal meth to Kevin and one other client. And Kelly also testified that it took several years for her to tell authorities about the details of that evening because she feared going to prison for her drug dealing. And she also feared for her life. If someone had reason to kill Adrian, it's not surprising that she thought somebody had it out for her as well. But one of the most damning pieces of testimony presented at the preliminary hearing was that of Wayne Estrada. So who is Wayne? Well, Wayne was a former acquaintance of Kevin's from when he still lived in the San Diego area. In fact, Kevin had done some drywall work for him back in 1994. And one day when Kevin was doing work at Wayne's house, Wayne's semi-automatic 22 caliber handgun mysteriously disappeared right before Adrian was murdered. Here's what he said. I was in my apartment and I remember putting the gun on my nightstand. I went to my living room and fell asleep. And when I woke up, the gun was gone. Kevin was also gone. And after the gun went missing... Kevin essentially ghosted Wayne and never answered a phone call from him again and disappeared. The sheriff detective committed to solving this case, Rick Scully, would testify that the bullet casings found at the scene of Adrian's murder matched those found in a field near Wayne's home, which he often used for target practice. So there's no doubt that the evidence presented at this preliminary hearing was strong. So what would Kevin's defense argue and come back with? 
While a lot of the state's witnesses testified to Kevin's past drug use, they also admitted that they too were on drugs during the time in question. Kevin's attorney focused on that and pointed to the checkered history of each of these witnesses, as well as their incomplete memories in an attempt to undermine their claims. The defense also accused Kevin's ex-girlfriend, Jennifer Rocks, of fabricating Kevin's confession to the slang to avenge Kevin's brutal attack on her current boyfriend in Florida. At the end of the preliminary hearing, the Vista Superior Court judge ruled that there was absolutely enough evidence presented at the two-day hearing to justify the murder charge Kevin was facing. Kevin, who was also facing charges of being a convicted felon in possession of a gun, was now facing 25 years to life in prison if convicted. It seemed as though a trial was imminent. Kevin was still denying his involvement in Adrian's murder and expected to plead not guilty. The evidence against him seemed solid. And objectively, it looked like the odds were pretty strong that Kevin would be convicted of this crime. But then, something happened. And it's unclear why or how. But three of the witnesses who testified to hearing Kevin confess to the murder started to backpedal on their story and eventually recanted their testimony altogether, which was a huge problem for this case. And another big problem was that Kevin's defense attorney presented evidence suggesting that Kevin wasn't alone with Adrian on the night that he was killed. So this now calls into question who actually pulled the trigger. These new variables threw a really big wrench into the state's case. And this forced the prosecutors between a rock and a hard place. It forced them to make a decision that would have crushed Adrian's family, who had finally had hope that Adrian's killer would pay for what he did. And fearing this was no longer a case that would convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, they offered Kevin a plea deal, a really generous plea deal. The prosecution agreed to drop the murder charge against Kevin in exchange for him pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter. So as a result, he was sentenced to only four years in a state prison. However, since Kevin remained in jail following his 2004 arrest, which was more than three years, he was released right away with credit for good behavior. I just, I don't know the level of Kevin's involvement, right? If other people were there, if there is a chance someone pulled the trigger, I guess I understand this from a legal perspective, but I just feel for Adrian's family. It's like, first, this looks like an ironclad case. Then it's a plea deal. Then, okay, he gets four years. Nope, he's getting out right away. It's like, what an anticlimactic, devastating chain of events for them. Yeah, and for them, there's just like no justice whatsoever. And it just seems like it's kind of just swept under the rug where it's it's got to be the most disappointing thing for his family. I feel for them so much. Yeah, me too. So we obviously don't know Adrian's family or how they took the news, but given how passionate his stepdad was about keeping Adrian's memory alive and how heartbroken his mother said she was in that news article, we're sure they were devastated to hear about all of this. Kevin was released, and now he's back in the wind. And the mystery surrounding his participation in Adrian Marshall's murder persists. We just don't know. He became a long-haul truck driver. He always is in a relationship. He jumps from one relationship to another. One of my kids talks to them, and the younger one has pretty much nothing to do with him, really, just because she didn't really ever know him, (laughs) you know, for most of her life. I'm the type that once somebody's out of my life, I want nothing to do with them. Whether Kevin was the one who pulled the trigger, we'll never know. But there was evidence that proved that he was at the scene. So at the very least, he was party to the murder of Adrian. And from where we're sitting, that's bad enough. Because if he didn't do it, then his friend did it. And he had the opportunity to tell the truth about who did do this. And 
an opportunity to give Adrian's family some peace, and he didn't take it. So the truth remains in limbo, and Darlene's memories, even the positive ones, remain divided, confused, and understandably torn. But alas, in life, sometimes you just don't get all the answers you want. He had one side of him that he was just a great person. His family are are great people. And then you have this other side of him that, you know, the addiction and all of the anger, a lot of anger issues, it was two different people. So what exactly is the moral to the story, if there is one at all? I don't know if it's a moral to the story is when you're young, you feel like nobody else will ever love you when you you have somebody and you almost feel like they're telling you that. So for me, I felt like if I left him or got rid of him, like I would be completely alone. And that was like the young mind thinking. I would have probably left him a lot sooner. I wouldn't have kept sticking through it and kept being the, thinking that you could change somebody because you can only change somebody if they want to change themselves. And I was the only one that really wanted to change him. He did not want to change himself, even though he would say it. One thing I've told my kids over and over, and I guess it's kind of the moral of the story, is that you, you, can't, you can't make somebody change. There's obviously more than one theme we've explored in today's episode. And one quote to embody what I've taken away from this story is, youth is wasted on the young. People always say that, and you only know what that means after you've had some life experience under your belt. When you're young, everything, especially love, feels shiny, new, invigorating, and like you'll never find it again. And you may even put yourself through hell to try to keep it. Hell, you may even put yourself in danger to try to keep it. And finally, like what Darlene said, you can't make someone change. So if someone in your life, especially someone close, is in a downward spiral, back away slowly because it won't stop unless they themselves realize the disaster their presence is leaving in their wake. And finally, hard drugs. We talk about drugs all the time. In a lot of true crime podcasts, don't cover a lot of stories with these drug implications, but they're so important because these are the stories most people can relate to due to the drug problems in our country, right? They're they're everywhere. And we know that they truly have the ability to transform people into something and someone else. huge thank you to Darlene for being a first degree for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Please come to our meetups next month. The invites are in our Facebook group, join our Patreon for lots of bonus content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but not that close. This episode was researched and written by me. Shout out to me. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree. Sources from this episode include the Florida Sun Sentinel, the Times Advocate, the San Diego Union Tribune, Florida City News Service, and the San Diego Times, and court documents. And finally, our first degree source is always our largest source. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.